Our Father, we bow before you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ which covers over a multitude of our sins. We thank you that though he was slain on our behalf, on the third day, he breathed again. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the commission to go and to proclaim your word. So Father, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth today will be pleasing in your sight. And on this day, help me to preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Allow me to begin today by expressing my gratitude to Paul Moore and to Matt Wright. Three weeks ago, Paul Moore stood in my stead and preached while the family and I were on a mission trip to Michigan. Last Sunday, Matt Wright stood in this very same spot and preached the very word of God while the family and I were able to go on vacation. And so to both of these men, I want to express my gratitude. Thank you for who you are and for what you do. We are blessed to have the church staff that we have. God has shined his favor upon us, and for that we are eternally grateful. It is good to be afforded the opportunities to travel, to teach, and to preach God's word, to vacate with family. It's good to get away, but it's always good to come back home. So whether we are traveling south from Michigan or whether we're traveling north from Florida, once we cross that Alabama line, it seems that in my mind I hear that great theologian Leonard Skinner, who says, sweet home Alabama, where the skies are so blue, sweet home Alabama, Lord, I'm coming home to you. So it is good to be in God's house on God's day with God's people today. Let us turn our attention once again to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 48. Today we continue our sermon series that's entitled The Good Life, where we eavesdrop not only on the first sermon ever recorded in the New Testament, but the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever lived. So with your Bibles open, I invite you to stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5. Let's begin at verse 33. We'll read through verse 48. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I read this passage, I walk away realizing that this is a tough teaching on the lips of Jesus. It seems to me that Jesus says that kingdom people are to speak no evil, do no evil, and show no evil to either friend or foe. The problem with that is that you and I are evil. There is no compartment of our life that is not touched and tainted, scarred and marred by sin. We are completely and utterly sinful and selfish from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet. Jesus tells us that we are to shun evil, that we are not to speak evil, verses 33 to 37. We are not to uh, do evil, verses 38 to 42. We are not to show evil, verses 43 to 48. But the bottom line is that you and I are evil. To make matters worse, Jesus says in the concluding statement, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. There have been some who've tried to explain this away by saying, well, what Jesus really means is he means for us to be mature or to be complete or to achieve our end result. And certainly that word perfect can be translated in those ways. But I think that when Jesus comes to the bottom line and he says for us to be perfect, you know what I think he means? I think he means that we have to be perfect in order to be in his kingdom. And I walk away from this tough teaching and I ask myself, how is this possible? Jesus constructs his statements in a very similar way as he's been doing for the past several weeks. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, Jesus says. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. On six occasions in this middle section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reaches back to the Mosaic Law, and then he puts his own words on par with Scripture. Not that he's taking anything away from the law or adding to the law, but he's accurately fulfilling and describing the law. So you've heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, do not... Murder, but I say unto you, don't even get angry at your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say unto you, do not even look lustfully at a person. You've heard it said that when you get a divorce, you must issue a certificate of divorce, but I say unto you, don't even get a divorce, except perhaps in some cases of marital infidelity. Jesus continues in our passage, and he says that for kingdom people, we are to speak no evil. For you've heard it said, that you must not break an oath made to the Lord. There's a loose reference of this in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. It's there where we read that if a man makes an oath, a pledge, or a vow unto the Lord, he must make good on everything he has promised. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are examples of where it's permissible to make an oath. Usually, whenever an oath was made, it was an oath made unto the Lord for a sacred service. So when an oath was made, it was evoking the very presence of God to serve as your witness. So it'd be like a person saying, um, as God is my witness, I will do this or do that. 
As God is my witness, I'm telling you the truth. As God is my witness, I promise to fulfill this task or that task. And so whenever an oath was made, it evoked the very presence of God to serve as the witness that you are honestly, accurately speaking the truth. Now some of this still finds its way in our day. When a man and a woman stand before the Lord in holy matrimony, the minister will say, this man and this woman stand before God and the sacred assembly. By saying that, what the minister is implying is that God is the witness of these vows. When you and I take seriously the vows that we make with our spouse, then we realize that we are making a promise, we're making a covenant, we are declaring an oath, and God himself is the very witness of the vows we make, and may God deal with us, be it ever so severely, if we break the oath or the vow made in his presence under his name. So when you and I honestly understand the vows that we make, woe is us if we are to break those marriage vows. In a similar way, when I was called to preach, I I made a vow unto the Lord. I say, Lord, I I promise, uh, I make an oath unto you, as long as you give me breath, I will proclaim the very word of God. Woe is me if I deviate from that. Because this is a vow that has been made. It's an oath that has been taken in the the very presence of God Almighty. So there are times when it's very permissible to make an oath and to take an oath. But in the days of Jesus, oath-taking and oath-making was as as common as, as, uh, as the sand of the seashore. People were making promises all the time, and they weren't making good on those promises, and they knew they weren't going to make good on those promises, for the Pharisees taught that the only oath that you had to make good on was an oath that was made unto the Lord. So any other oath that was made by heaven or by earth or by the city of Jerusalem or even by your own head, all that was just a loophole for lying. So a person could say, you can trust me, you can take me at my word, for I make an oath, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by heaven, I'm telling you the truth, I promise to you as an oath under my head, we would say on a stack of Bibles, I promise to you, I swear on my mother's grave that I'm telling you the truth. All these instances were just loopholes for lying. They were trying to coerce, they were trying to manipulate the conversation, they were trying to advance their own selfish agendas. So everybody in the first century, they were making oath and taking oath. They were doing it all over the place. And really what they were doing was nothing more than lying. And the Pharisees said that's permissible so long as you don't break an oath to the Lord. And Jesus comes along and he says, listen, you're making an oath to heaven. Heaven is God's throne. You're taking an oath by earth. Earth is his footstool. You're taking an oath on the sacred city of Jerusalem. That is the king's city. You're taking an oath by swearing on your own head, by your own power, your own authority. But you can't even turn a white hair black again. Now keep in mind, this is before the days of just for men. But still there, you, you, you don't have the power in your own ability to change, change even the color of your hair. So Jesus says, listen, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Speak the truth out of your mouth. And what you say, make good on what you say. Whether you're making a promise unto the Lord or making a promise to one of God's people. You just let your yes be yes and your no be no. The problem with this is that we live in a world that is structured on fabrication. We live in a world of lies. 
the devil, the, the prince of the air, he, he roams around. And, and Jesus said that when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language. We are born liars. You don't have to teach your children how to lie. You have to teach them how not to lie. They know how to lie because we're born with a sinful, evil, wicked nature. It's James, the brother of our Lord, who says that this mouth gets us in trouble all the time. With these lips, we praise God, and with these same lips, we curse men. My brothers, this should not be. Doctors tell us that your tongue is nothing more than a two-ounce slab of membrane. Maybe some of us have fatter tongues than others, but by and large, it's about two ounces. And it's that tongue that gets us in an, an inordinate amount of trouble because we lie on purpose, we deceive the truth, we distort the truth, we embellish the story, we exaggerate the bottom line, we, we lie in order to advance our agenda or to save our own hide. We do whatever is possible so that we can just kind of navigate and skate through this life. There's been more than one parent who has asked me, do you think that my Johnny is lying to me? Do you, do you think that, that Johnny's lying to me about smoking weed? And I say, I promise you Johnny's lying to you about smoking weed. You found the pot in his duffel bag. I promise you he's lying about that. Are you trying to tell me that a salesman will lie just to seal the deal? I promise you that a salesman will lie to seal the deal. Are you trying to tell me that uh, my spouse of some 23 years will lie about adultery even though there's exhibit A, B, and C? I promise you your spouse will lie about adultery even though there's exhibit A, B, and C. Why? Because we're born liars, right? And Jesus says, kingdom people are perfect people, so speak no evil. This is problematic because all of us are indicted. We tell a half truth, which is nothing more than a whole lie. And so Jesus says, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, you've got to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Is there anything God can't do? God can't lie. God cannot lie. And so if we are God's people, then we must speak no evil. Jesus furthers that when he says, I want you to do no evil, verses 38 to 42. It's there that Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't even resist an evil person. That principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a bedrock of every judicial system known to man. It ensures that the punishment meets the crime. It also restricts vigilante justice. So that um, if there's a scuffle and someone loses an eye, then an eye should be demanded. If, if a life is taken because of senseless slaughtering, then a life ought to be demanded. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It, it, it restricted... Um, Extreme punishment for the crime. For example, if, if a neighbor stole your plow, you couldn't ask for the death penalty. That seems a little extravagant, doesn't it? So it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, you've heard it stated, and it's stated numerous times in the Mosaic Law, in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, do not resist the evil person. Now, Jesus' words have been grossly misunderstood throughout the ages. Let me tell you up front, Jesus is not saying that we are to be sanctimonious punching bags. 
Jesus is not saying that we're to be a religious doormat, allow people to walk all over us. When he says, do not resist an evil person, he's not saying just let the evil person do whatever the evil person wants to do in your life or to you. No, the word resist best understood is retaliate. Jesus says, do not retaliate in like fashion. The Pharisees taught that if it's good in the judicial system, it will be good in relationships. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So if someone slanders you, then you have the right to slander them. If someone hurts you, then you have the right to hurt them. If someone gossips about you, you have the right to gossip about them so long as what you retaliate with is not too extreme for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, listen, don't retaliate at all. In this passage, Jesus is not denying our rights. Jesus is not saying that you don't have a right to defend yourself. Jesus is not saying you don't have a right to defend your property. Jesus is not saying you don't have a right to defend what belongs to you. Jesus is not denying our rights. But what he is saying is that there are times as kingdom people, we must lay down our rights card. We do this intentionally. We do it on purpose. We willingly, voluntarily lay down our rights card. Our rights may be stepped upon and we may be justified in some form of retaliation, but there are times when the kingdom person will simply, willingly, voluntarily lay down rights cards. Jesus gives four everyday examples. If someone slaps you across the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. If you're guilty and somebody wants to sue you and they're going to take you to the cleaners, they want your shirt, you give them your jacket as well. Jesus goes on and he says not only if someone wants to sue you, but if someone forced you to go one mile, then you go a second mile. Then the fourth example is you give to the one who's in need for if someone needs to borrow something from you, then you give it freely. All of these are counterintuitive. They're countercultural. It's not the way we normally would respond. Jesus says, listen, um, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say don't retaliate in like fashion. So do not resist the evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, you turn the other. Most people in the first century were right-handed. So for you to be slapped by a right-handed person meant that right-handed person had to backhand you with the back side of his hand across the right side of your face. This was the most demeaning form of a slap that was known in humanity. It was well documented that slaves said, I would rather be whipped by my master than to be slapped across the face. And Jesus says, if someone demeans you, they rear, rear back their hand, they slap you, then you turn to them the other cheek. And Jesus is not saying that once you get slapped twice, then uh, you throw the gloves in the ring and uh, you're going to uh, you know, give them a good tail whipping. He's not saying that either. He's just saying, listen, there are times when you will willingly lay down your rights card. Willingly, when uh, you will not retaliate the way you feel like you want to retaliate. You will not seek revenge the way you want to seek revenge. You won't respond like the world. There will be times when you lay down your rights card and you won't look for an opportunity to get even, even though everything inside of you wants to get even with that person. Jesus says if someone takes you to court, uh, the implication is that you're guilty. And, uh, and, and on the way, you say, what's going to reconcile us? And they say, well, if you give me your shirt, uh, then we'll be reconciled. You say, not only will I give you my shirt, but I'll give you my jacket as well. Why would you do that? Because Jesus says kingdom people seek reconciliation. You'll remember that uh, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of reconciliation. So you live your life in such a way as to be heard so the gospel can be proclaimed. 
Everyone knew in the first century that a Roman soldier had every right in his prerogative and jurisdiction to force you as a Roman citizen to carry his pack for up to one mile. And Jesus said, if someone forced you to go one mile, then you tell that Roman soldier, I'll carry it two miles. Why in the world would Jesus tell us to do that? Because if you carry a pack of a Roman soldier two miles instead of one mile, you have twice as long to tell him the gospel as you do if you only carry it one mile. You are living your life in the hopes of being heard. You're living your life in the opportunity to open the door uh, so you can speak the good news of the gospel into someone's life. Jesus gives a fourth analogy, an illustration. He says, listen, if somebody wants to borrow something from you and you have it, you lend it to them freely. But you think to yourself, I don't want to do that. If I lend to my neighbor my shovel, it'll come back broken. It'll come back bent because that neighbor never returns anything in mint condition. And Jesus is saying, listen, you know that your neighbor is as lost as a golf ball in high weeds. You lend him the shovel because that just might open the door of opportunity for a conversation where you can win him unto the Lord. You live your life counterintuitive, countercultural. You do things where everything inside of you wants to respond by doing evil. But God's people, kingdom people, they do no evil. So you live your life in an effort to win others for Christ. You live your life in an effort to win an opportunity to share the good news. I've got to tell you, this is is really hard for me. I I am not really good at this, and I'll just tell you up front, I'm not really good at this um, because I I, I know uh, how how I can retaliate and and what I want to say sometimes, but there are moments when, when I do it correctly. A couple years ago, uh, I was pastoring a different church. I come home from vacation. Um, we needed some things from the store, so I went to that God-forsaken place called Walmart, and uh, I was standing there, and I realized that you've probably had some great experiences at Walmart. That's just not my story. Uh, I just, I rarely have good experiences at Walmart, and um, I, I really think that the whole interview process is lacking somewhat for Walmart, uh, because I think that if, if you don't know how to smile, If you really don't want to help anybody, if you're mad at the world, then you, my friend, could be a checkout clerk at Walmart. I mean, I really think that's that's kind of the way it goes. And so I'm standing there in line at Walmart, and I've got that person as the checkout uh, individual. And I'm thinking to myself, what can I do to try to make her smirk? I'm going for a smile, but a crooked grin would do. So what can I do just to kind of make her smirk? And then all of a sudden, I felt as if someone else was approaching me. I turned and I glanced over, and I recognized the individual, but I couldn't not readily place her name. She came walking up to me and we exchanged what I thought were pleasantries. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fine. How's the family? Good. Are you doing all right? Yes, we're doing well. And then all of a sudden it turned on a dime and she launched into a verbal tirade right there in the middle of Walmart. As she spoke, her voice began to escalate, her volume increased, so did my blood pressure. And I stood there and I listened to what she was saying. And all the while I'm thinking to myself, who are you? I mean, I know I should know you, but who are you? And why are you talking to me like this? My mama don't even talk to me like this. What are you doing? And she proceeded to tell me what a lousy pastor I am. And I thought to myself, listen, I I get that. Most days I am a lousy pastor, but why are you calling me a lousy pastor? And so then she began to launch into what a pathetic church uh, we were involved in and, and the reason was because uh, she had a family member that was sick and I didn't go see them and nobody from the church called and so I was lousy the church was pathetic and she went on and on and on and in my mind I'm having a conversation I don't know if you talk to yourself I talk to myself that's not a sign of insanity that's a sign of brilliance so when you talk to yourself (laughs) 
When you talk to yourself, that's a sign of brilliance. I'm having a conversation in my mind. I'm thinking to myself, ooh, once this woman stops, when she gives me just a moment's pause, I'm going to launch in there. I'm going to give her a piece of my mind. I'm going to nail her to the proverbial wall. I'm going to tell her where to go and how to get there. And I'm going to tell her, I'm going to put her straight. And I'm just waiting for that moment. And all of a sudden, I can tell she's winding down. She's winding down. And here comes that spot. And there it was. It was a sweet spot. It was that moment right there, that few seconds of silence. I'm ready to jump in. I'm ready to pounce. I've got the words already in my mind. And I'm ready to speak. And all of a sudden, this is what I hear come out of my mouth. I am so sorry you feel that way. And I thought to myself, what? That's it? That's the best you What are you, a pansy preacher? Come on now, let's say something here. I mean, this is your opportunity. And so what I thought was, I need to follow this woman and give her a piece of my mind. But all, I'm so sorry you felt that way. And I thought, I was like, what are you doing, man? What's wrong with you? And then all of a sudden, I felt someone else staring at me. I looked over. Once again, it was a gentleman that I didn't recognize, but he looked at me and said, Pastor Davin. So apparently he knew me. So I took a step back. And I said to him, um, how are you doing tonight? And I will never forget his reply. His response was, I'm doing far better than you. That's all it took. I put my things on the conveyor belt. Out I went and left Walmart, and I thought to myself, wow, what that, that's an example. And I'm telling you, I don't do this a lot. I don't do it every time. That's an example. When what you want to say, you may even have a right to say it. You, you may want to do it, but you willingly, voluntarily lay down your rights card. Jesus says, kingdom people speak no evil. Kingdom people do no evil. Third, kingdom people show no evil. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, loving your neighbor, that's in the Mosaic Covenant. Hating your enemy was a pharisaical law that was created and crafted. The way the Pharisees got this is because they said, well, when the children of Israel entered into the promised land, God told them to evict the Canaanites, Moabites, Ammonites, and, and so they, they hated their enemies. So if God told them to do that, then certainly God's okay with you doing that. In fact, it may even be a mandate from God. You're to love your neighbor and you're to hate your enemy. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But listen, I tell you, you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. Now this is hard. I mean, it's really hard to pray for the person that you don't like. To pray for the person that doesn't like you. To pray for the person that stands polar opposite to everything that you stand for. For you to pray for that person? You want to punch that person. You want to put that person in their place. And Jesus says, listen, if you listen to the Pharisees, you can love your neighbor. You can hate your enemy. But that's not what God intended. For the Mosaic Covenant really meant you need to pray for your enemy and you need to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is giving a tough teaching. Jesus says perfection is demanded. How do you do this? Why do you ask this of us, Jesus? And Jesus gives an example of God. He says, look at God. God's compassion has an element of equality. His, his benevolence, his compassion, his kindness 
is extended to all. Jesus said, think about the sun in the sky, the S-U-N. It rises in the east and it sets in the west for the good and for the evil. It's not like um, the good person uh, lives a life under sunny skies and the bad person always has the dark cloud over his head and constant rainstorms and thunder bolts. Now Jesus says, look at God. God gives the sun in the sky to the righteous and to the reprobate. Think about God's nourishing rain that falls from the heavens. It's given to the Christian farmer. It's given to the pagan farmer. So the crops grow for the Christian and the crops grow for the non-Christian. Theologians call this common grace. God is stuffed with so much goodness. He's stuffed with so much grace that, it, that this grace oozes out upon all of humanity so that even the unrighteous reprobate has a sun that rises in the east and sets in the west and has rain that falls to replenish the earth and grow its crops. I don't know about you, but if I were God for the day, I think I'd only let the sun shine on the good people. I think I would let there be a drought on the reprobates. But that's why I'm not God for a day. Because God is so good. His grace is given out to all. And so Jesus says, if all you know how to do is love those who love you, how are you any different than the mafia? I mean, they know how to take care of their own, right? How are you any different than a tax collector? A known thief, a criminal, even a, a known uh, robber knows how to be nice to people he likes and how to be wicked to people he does not like. If you're in the marketplace and all you do is greet your brother, greet your neighbor, how are you any different than pagans? Pagans know how to be nice to friends and shun foes. This is, the, this is the backbone of the question that the expert lawyer has for Jesus when he comes up to Jesus and he says, um, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives that great story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan story proves that your neighbor has nothing to do with geography. Your neighbor has nothing to do with skin color. Your neighbor has nothing to do with personal interest. Your neighbor has everything to do with a person who has a need you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. And Jesus says, if all you know how to do is greet your friend and shun your foe, you're nothing different than an unrighteous reprobate. A few weeks ago, we asked this question. I'll ask it again today. Has there ever been a person, even in your family or inside the faith family, who has wronged you, ridiculed you, said something hurtful or harmful about you? You've got an axe to grind against them, and let's just be honest, you may have a right to it. You, you may have a grudge and, and you have a right to hold a grudge, but has there ever been a person that you intentionally avoid? You know they park in the upper lot, so you park in the lower lot. You know what service they come to, so you come to another service because you desperately don't want your, your path to cross with theirs. And Jesus says, listen, if you know how only to greet your brother and be nice to your friend but shun your foe, you're acting just like an unrighteous reprobate. Jesus gives a tough teaching today. He ends it in verse 48. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think to myself, Jesus, you're asking something of me that I can't deliver on. How can I be perfect? 
You tell me to speak no evil, and there are times that I speak evil. You tell me to do no evil, and there are times I do evil. You told me, you tell me to show no evil, and there are times that I show evil. How can I do what you're asking me to do? I want to tell you, friends, the reason Jesus preaches this sermon is so that you and I will know the depth of our depravity and how totally wicked and sinful we are and that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no shot of getting into God's kingdom. The Pharisees were believed to be the holy, pure ones of the first century. And Jesus is saying, if you're not greater than the holiest person you know, you got no shot shot of getting to God's kingdom and we think to ourselves there's no way I can measure up to the holiest person I know and Jesus says ding 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 that's exactly right because you can't measure up to get into heaven when I come to the end of chapter 5 I'm reminded of the beginning of chapter 5 Jesus begins the beatitudes the introduction of the sermon and Jesus gives us the proper position and posture of entrance into the kingdom of God he says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven He says, this is how you enter his kingdom, on bended knee, with head downcast, arms outstretched, palm open heavenward, and you are a spiritual beggar. You are begging for benevolence from God, and this is how we enter the kingdom. And once we enter the kingdom, if we stand up on our own two feet, if we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, if we want to retaliate against those who do vengeance against us, the moment we become arrogant, prideful, it is God who says, listen, my demand is perfection. And you say, Jesus, I can't do it. And Jesus says, yes, but I've done it for you. So the only way that you and I can have entrance into God's kingdom is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The only way that you and I can be in the kingdom of God is to go in, through, and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, we understand that his righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to our account as if we lived the perfect life of Christ. That's the only way that we get in. If God demands perfection and you and I are evil, the only way evil people can get in is to borrow somebody else's perfection. And I want to tell you, I'm the first in line to say, Jesus, let me borrow your perfection. Jesus, let me borrow your purity. Jesus, let me borrow your holiness. Jesus, let me borrow your sanctity. Jesus, let me borrow you because I'm clothed in your righteousness. My only hope is Jesus Christ. For Jesus reminds us of the words of that hymn, uh, hope is built on nothing else than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I'll wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So we come to the end of chapter 5 the same way we began chapter 5, on bended knee, with head down cast, arms outstretched, palms open heavenward, and we just simply say, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, for I come to Thee. My friends, do you realize that you need Jesus as much or more now as you ever have? This is how you enter God's kingdom. This is the posture and position we maintain in the kingdom. On bended knee, with head downcast, arms outstretched, palm open heavenward. We don't raise our hands in despair. We raise our hands in desperation. If the Sermon on the Mount teaches us anything, it teaches us total dependency upon Christ. I am totally, utterly dependent 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that's good in me is Christ living in me. So Jesus says the standard is perfection. But you today acknowledge you're not perfect. And Jesus says, I'm glad you came to that conclusion. You can borrow my perfection. You can borrow my righteousness as if it belongs unto you. How do you do this, you ask? By faith. By faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, you go from dingy darkness into running in the marvelous, glorious light of our Lord. By faith, you trust, and by faith, you turn. By faith, you believe that Jesus died for your sin. He was placed in your grave, and on the third day, He was raised in new life to breathe again. So this morning, is there anyone here who needs to trust Jesus as Savior? To say, Jesus, I trust your perfection more than my own efforts. I trust you. This morning, maybe you're here and you've been walking with Christ for a very long time, decades in fact, but here recently, here lately, you've been trying to make it a go on your own. You realize you can't do it. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So today you fall on your face before the Lord and you say, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. So bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Jesus, we acknowledge on this day that we are not perfect. That is no newsflash in heaven. You know this. And today we acknowledge that we speak evil, we do evil, we show evil because we are evil. Yet you demand perfection. So Jesus, please clothe us with your righteousness. Please help us to borrow your perfection as if it belongs to us. Oh, Father, by your goodness and by your grace, you have paved the way so that we could stand innocent in your sight. And Lord, may we never get over the fact that Jesus paid it all. So Lord Jesus, if there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. For those who are here who are walking with you, help us to, help us to walk on bended knee. We ask this in Jesus' name.